from the late 1700s and uh, the early 1800s. It was uh, that time period during the the Napoleonic Wars and such where they had the great masted ships with all the cannons and and just some of the... um, the marvels of craftsmanship as as these ships were constructed, uh, you know, just the, the holes and just the basic deck of the ship would take 56 acres of oak trees. That is a lot of oak trees. The holes were three feet thick. Think about that. And even after they were constructed and the whole and the basic structure was done, then they had to get the big fir trees and for the masts and yard arms and canvas and tackle and ropes. And then they had to get all the people who knew how to put them on there. And then all the people who knew how to work them so that the ship could set sail. Well, when we're born into this world, God gives us the basic structure of the human body so that we can function in this world uh, in a way that gives him glory. But, you know, when you're growing up, you need a lot of training. You need a lot of uh, skills uh, before you set sail into the open seas of this world. But what's happening today is many of the young people are growing up so that when it comes time to where they should be setting out uh, to see, they're not fit. They're not fit. Some just sit in the harbor and never set sail at all. They just kind of taxi around maybe, maybe go out a little bit around the breakers, but they come back in uh, never really leaving home. And eventually, uh, because they never really get rigged for sailing, they kind of have all sorts of barnacles attached to them and shipworms start eating out their hole and, and pretty soon they're just would never be fit. Uh, their lives are just full of a derelict pile of rope and tackle and they never really get to the place where they can function as God would have them. Some talk of being on their own and and being married someday and having children, but they make no effort whatsoever to become the kind of people who accomplish that sort of life. Now, two weeks ago, I started to address this problem. I spent considerable time trying to help some of you, especially those of you who are older, to try and get a a visual picture, an understanding of what is assaulting our youth today. You know, if you don't understand the electronic culture and, you know, I don't do, you know, computers and I just know how to make phone calls with my cell phone or whatever. If you're one of those people who just doesn't really know that, you, you have no idea what is assaulting our youth. I think the parents, especially older parents, aren't really doing a good job at protecting their youth or training their youth or trying to equip their youth so that when they get old enough, they can actually leave home, get married, be responsible citizens, have a job, serve in the church and be normal Christians. A young person may know how to play video games and do it with excellence and text with one hand behind his back to search the internet freely and find whatever he wants instantaneously, but he doesn't know how to cook, doesn't know how to clean, doesn't know how to do laundry, doesn't know how to sweep. I mean, I worked with youth for a while and took them out to rake leaves one time and half of them didn't know how to use a rake. That is a pretty simple instrument. (laughs) 
pull toward you, pull toward you. I mean, that's it. They're kind of like, some of them are kind of like, you know, scraping along. They didn't know to even pick it up. And I just thought, well, they're not being trained in just like basic life skills that you have to have. You know, when you're a parent, when you're a mother, when you're a father, when you're out there in the world. A large majority of singles are plunging themselves into immorality. They're defiling their minds with pornography, satiating themselves with corrupt entertainment. And God's plan for most is to be married. That is the default setting. Now, granted, there are some who are given the gift of singleness. And uh, God gives them that gift so that they can serve him with undistracted devotion all of their lives and not really feel a need to be married. But now those who don't have that gift aren't getting married. Instead, they're just engaging in immorality to meet those needs which should only be met in marriage. They become very self-focused and their bad habits become worse habits. They're not progressing in godliness. They're not you know, developing a disciplined lifestyle. They're not securing undistracted devotion to the Lord, but instead are, are working, if they are working, to just feed their flesh and get more of the world in there. And yet they think that this is, this is the Christian life. It's, it's not. Young men are slaves to pornography and young women are committing pornography. The way they dress and act. Committing immoral acts is epidemic, even among those who call themselves Christians. I mean, if we had more time, I had, I had this one article that was written by a pastor in a church about how they help people who are living together, unmarried in their congregation. And so I thought that since this is the epidemic sin that's really strangling our youth, We need to hit it head on. And so we're looking at the most comprehensive text in the New Testament on the subject, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. So turn in there with your Bibles if you haven't already. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. We learn that immorality is to engage in any sexual sin in thought or deed that is that is prohibited by the word of God. And Corinth, when Paul writes to Corinth, Corinth was just, they were just ultra pagan, scary pagan, scary immoral. And so he preaches the gospel and these people are repenting of their sins and they're, they're leaving their immoral lifestyles and following Christ. But some of them are having a hard time leaving their sins. And so he writes them to give them some principles so that they can understand why they need to abstain from immorality. You know, it's not just say no. There are reasons to say no. And there are huge reasons. And so as we look at this text this morning, you are going to just see, you know, it's really pounding. I'm purposely going to go through all uh, of the rest 11 reasons just so you kind of get the overall pounding impact of the gravity of immorality. And so please follow along as I read. I'm going to start in verse 9 because verses 9 through 11, they give us kind of the statement 
of the problem of sin and that salvation delivered us from that sin. And then verses 12 through 20 gives us the reasons why we should abstain after we have come to Christ from immorality. So I'm going to read the whole section, though. We're only going to be going through verses 12 through 20. So you can follow along. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee from immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So here we have 12 reasons why every Christian is to abstain from immorality. We looked at the first one last time, found in verse 12. Immorality isn't profitable. It's never helpful. Paul says... All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. And the whole point there is, yes, whatever is permitted in the word of God is fine. But immorality is never permitted in the word of God. And it's never profitable. Not all things are profitable. And immorality is one of them. It's always harmful to you. It's always harmful to your relationship with the Lord It hurts others. It brings dishonor to God. It's not profitable. Secondly, immorality causes you to reject your true master. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but he says, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now the word mastered, and that's how the New American Standard has it, or brought under the power of, as the New King James, or enslaved, the English Standard Version, just speaks of those things. To have dominance over uh, things that have dominance over her, that, that control you, that tell you what to do, that dictate your life, that are moving factors for why you do or don't do certain things. There is only one thing that is to master the Christian, and that's the Lord. The Lord is to be our master, our Lord, our Savior. It is the Lord who is to be telling us what to do, to be um, directing our lives through his word so that we submit to the Lord by submitting to the word of the Lord, which is God's word. But how can you know if you're mastered by something? You know, I mean, you may be sitting out there thinking, well, Pastor Jack, I mean, I don't know if I'm mastered by something or not. I, I'm not quite sure. I, I don't really know. Well, there's one way you can know, and it's a pretty 
simple way, and it is this. Anything that keeps you from following the Lord becomes your master. Because Christ, who is your master, if you're a Christian, would never tell you not to obey him. So anything that gets in the way of you following Christ usurps Christ's lordship in that area. Even things that are are not sinful, like sports, exercise, texting, eating, Facebook, hobbies, golf, you know, fishing, whatever, sleeping on the couch. Now, there's things, there's a lot of things you can do, which in and of themselves are fine. However, those things which may be fine become our Lord if we sin against Christ to do them. Let me just say that, uh, you know, I was able to follow you around or uh, somebody were to give me a very detailed description of how you used your your time. And I discovered that in in a given week, you know, let's say you spent three hours playing sports, six hours um, on Facebook. You had one hour sending text messages, five hours watching TV, and three hours reading the newspaper. Now, that is super conservative. Uh, That's just 18 hours, and a lot of people spend three times that much every week watching TV. Now, How would you know if Christ was the Lord of your life as you engaged in those things or those things were your Lord over Christ? This is how you'd know. Are you disobeying Christ to do those things? You know, I I come to you and I ask you, so uh, let me ask you, have you been reading your Bible? And you say, oh, no, I, I just didn't have time this week. Oh. So those 18 hours that you spent doing things you didn't need to do were telling you were the master of your life instead of Christ. Christ says, I want you to read the scriptures. I want you to pray. I want you to serve. I want you to give. I want you to be involved in church. You know, all those things he tells even the basic godly disciplines. I want you to do these things, but I'm not going to do those things because I have all these other worldly distractions and I'm putting them before the Lord. They're mastering you. That's how you know. Now, if you can say, yes, I'm reading my Bible. Yes, I'm praying. Yes, I'm serving. Yes, I'm attending a church. Yeah, I'm involved in a small group, man. I'm sure in my faith. I'm, I'm doing these things. And I'm doing the other things fine. But when those things take precedent over what Christ commands, then you are mastered by that thing, even if it's a good thing in and of itself. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. John 10, 27. So if you are saying, well, I'm Jesus' sheep, but I don't follow him. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus is my Lord. He's my Lord. Now, I don't do what he says. See, that just doesn't work, does it? That reveals you've got another master. Either someone or something else or yourself is now taking control as master of your life. And so Paul says, don't let it happen to you. Especially since he's speaking of immorality, don't let immorality which is very 
pleasure giving. Don't let that become a master and control your life. Third, your body is not for immorality. Look at verse 13. Food is for the stomach. The stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. This is actually a little uh, quippy quote from Paul's time that people would use. It actually comes from what is called philosophical dualism, where you say, you know what? When I get hungry, I eat a sandwich, and then I'm not hungry anymore. I satisfy that desire that God has given me. Therefore, if I have sexual desires, then I commit acts of immorality and I satisfy those desires. Do you see how you can rationalize that? Obviously, it's only natural. It's how God made me. No, Paul says, your body was never given to you to engage in immorality. The creator did not create you for immorality. We hear similar things today. It's just merely biological. It's just normal behavior. It's natural. Well, you know what? It's natural for people who don't love God. And it does have some biological aspects. And yes, it is normal behavior for the world, but not for Christians. It can't be for Christians. Let's say you're my friend and you know I love old books. And, and so you, you, you were on the internet one time and you find out that they, they're actually selling a first edition copy of John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress in perfect condition with his signature in it. So you sell your house to buy me that book. Okay? I mean, this is like, you know, oh, you know, you bring it on the, you know, the black, you know, velvet pillow and hand it to me anyways this is like you know this super rare antique okay now you come by a week later and uh, you come to my house and you 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 see some legs sticking out from under my truck and you're thinking what is he doing under there and so you come up and say jack what's going on under there i'm changing the oil and you look under and there you, you see the book you got me and the, t- the cover's ripped off and the pages are ripped out and I've got them spread out on the driveway. And, you, and to your shock, you say, hey, w- what are you doing? Oh, I, I didn't want any oil to get on the driveway. Now, you would have a right to be incensed, right? What are you doing? I paid a fortune for that book. But yes, you gave it to me. See, that's not its purpose. God did not give you your body for immorality. It's not its purpose. And to use your body for immorality or to use your mind for immorality is to violate the purpose it was created for. Now, I just want you to know, you can take super valuable antique books and you can use them for oil dripping shields. I wouldn't recommend it. And God says, I have not given you your body for immorality, so don't do it. It's for the Lord. Four, your body will be resurrected. You know, one of the things I don't like about books that deal with purity today is they just don't give you the biblical reasons for abstaining from immorality. You, you might get age, you might hurt somebody's feeling and get heartbroken, you know. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, you know, a pregnancy and you know, all these different things, which, you know, those are reasons. But how many times have you ever said, you can't commit immorality because the resurrection? You ever heard that one? No. Well, you hear it here. This is it. 
Look at verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Your body will be resurrected. The body you're in right now is going to be resurrected. Granted, it's going to be glorified, but you're going to be in the body you're in for all eternity. Now think about that. You want to be before the Lord for all eternity within the the body that you defiled here on earth? I mean, what if the government passed a one shirt per year law? And what the law said is on your birthday, you could get a new shirt, but you had to wear that shirt and only that shirt for a whole year. Now think about that. What would you like a short sleeve or long sleeve, button up, pullover? I mean, what would you do? You think, okay, okay, I got to get my shirt for the year. And so, you know, you, when you get it, it's brand new, it's nice. And so what do you do? You're very careful of it. You got to make that thing last a year. You know, you're not going to eat any spaghetti. You're going to be wearing a bib at every meal, you know, and every time you work out, you know, you, you cover yourself in something to trying to protect yourself from staining and spotting your only shirt. Well, guess what? The body you have, it's the only one you get. It's going to be glorified, but you're going to be in it. For all eternity. Therefore, he says, do not engage in immorality. Your body will be resurrected. You're going to be in that thing for all eternity. So let's not drag it through the mud of immorality. Five, your bodies. And and I could just see, you know, two young people, right? You know, some guys trying to put the move on some young lady. And she just puts up her hand and says, listen. I'm going to be resurrected in this thing, and I don't want you messing with it. (laughs) Do it, man. Do it. Five, your bodies are members of Christ. When you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures talk about Christ being in you and you being in Christ and being members of Christ. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Paul says in Ephesians 5.30, we are members of his body. And the talking of the spiritual body of Christ, which is what? The church. He is the head of it. You know, a lot of times we think, well, you know, if I engage in immorality, it's just me. It's just my thing. No, it's not just you. Jesus is in you and you are in Jesus And you're part part of the body of Christ. And therefore, if you go into sin, you drag us with you. We don't want to go there with you. Thank you. And neither does Jesus. That is why, you know, church discipline must be practiced. Why? I mean, you could go back and we don't have time to look at it in in 1 Corinthians 5 where the immoral man was in the church. And he said, listen, if that guy's not going to repent, get him out of there because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. When you sin and commit immoral acts, you drag all of us in the body of Christ into your sin. You drag Jesus into your sin. And so that's why you are to do it. Let's just say, you know, you're a, you're a top secret, uh, you know, secret servant service agent. And you, your, your job is to guard the president and do other stealthy things. And let's just say that, uh, you know, you're coming back from assignment and you, you land in Dulles International Airport and, and all of a sudden you're, you're on your way back in your black limo and you're heading towards the White House and, and you look up ahead and there you see alongside the road a dead dog. 
And you tell the limo driver, pull over, pull over. So he pulls over and, and, and you get out and you've got your sidearm just to make sure it's not still alive. And you approach it. It's a dead coyote, man. It's been there a lot. It's reeking. It's kind of swelled up and puffy and it's got maggots crawling out from under it. And so you reach down and you grab that thing by the tail and you take it back and you throw it into the trunk of the limo. Now, you finally get to the White House, you open the trunk, you pull that thing out and you want to enter into the White House to give it to the president for a present. Now, even though you're like the top guy, do you think they're going to let you in? Not in your life. Why? You don't take a dead carcass into the White House and give it to... It it would be a dishonor. You are owned by the government. There's protocol here. There's respect that's due. You don't do that. Why? Because it would be dishonoring to the president, to the whole presidency, to the whole White House, to the whole function of why you exist. That's the whole point here, man. You can't take your dead carcass sins of immorality and drag them into the presence of Christ. Do not do it for obvious reasons. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Drag the rest of the church in. You know, you have to remember, we're a body of Christ. This is a local body of believers. All the believers here constitute this local body. When one of us sins, we're all drug into it. When one of us hurts, we all hurt. Just try this. Try hitting your toe. Now, even though the rest of your body is fine, what hurts? Your toe, right? Smash your finger. What hurts? Your finger, because it's connected. Well, we're all connected in Christ. So we need to maintain purity so we don't harm each other and we don't drag Jesus into our sin. Six. Avoid union with sin. Look at verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. And here Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, the famous uh, verse on marriage, where for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And of course that is talking about a physical union, but also a spiritual union. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 6, when he's speaking of divorce, is one of the reasons you can't just divorce and remarry because God joins them together spiritually. When people come together, they are joined together spiritually. It isn't just a biological act. It's it's a spiritual event, a spiritual union created, which God designed to be enjoyed by one man and one woman for life. Let's just say you go to Starbucks and, you know, you get your favorite white mocha skinny latte, two pumps of vanilla whipped cream, chocolate sprinkle, whatever thing, extra hot. And, you know, it's kind of your fix. And so you're sitting there kind of wringing your hands. You can't wait. And the barista's back there doing his magic on it, you know. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. You can't wait for that first sip. And he gets and he puts the sleeve on there. And right before he hands it to you, he goes. (laughs) And he goes, whoa, this is good. Hey, try this. And he hands it to his coworkers. And they all. And then they're all taking sips. What's going on? Then he says, hey, 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 anybody in the store here want a sip? And then they all take sips. And then he says, well, there you are. 
Is that good for you? No, it's not good for you. Why? Because you don't want a bunch of backwash. You don't want to have to deal with somebody else's lips (laughs) on your mocha. You want virgin mocha. Untouched, unspoiled, only for you. It's only right. Well, listen, that's what God wants for you in marriage. One man, one woman, virgin only for each other. It's like this. Let me go in here. I think I got it. Oh, here we go. White piece of paper. You come in and act immorality with somebody. It's like this. It's like you have given part of yourself away. Now, this is what you got left. But the paper turns a little darker. With each act, you've given yourself away, and what's left is darker. You commit another act, and then you got, you know, a a little bit left over. There you go. Now that's you. Well, you commit many acts of immorality with different people. What you have left is a little black piece of tattered paper. Here is a wedding day. I have something for you. So that, 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 that doesn't honor that person. It doesn't honor the Lord. It's not God's design. We're going to get there in weeks to come. God, God isn't a killjoy here, but he has things that he intends for marriage. And when they're used outside of marriage, it is defiling. It's defiling. It doesn't honor you. So if you spread yourself around, like the proverb said, you're just sowing your seed in the streets. It's defiling. It's dishonoring to your future husband or wife or other people's future husband or wife. And so don't do it. Seven, be united with Christ. Look at verse 17, Paul continues, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. This is the positive side of what he has just negatively stated in verse 16. Instead of joining yourself physically and spiritually to a harlot, be joined to Jesus. You know what? Jesus can be the best friend, the best boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. You know, if you need companionship, he's the one. He can satisfy all of those needs. He wants you to be close with him. He wants you to to pursue him, to read about him, to study him, to pray to him, to listen to him, speak to you through his word, to have this deep relationship because that relationship will continue for all eternity. If you're married, when you die, you're not going to be married anymore. When you love Jesus, you'll love him for all eternity. That relationship will continue. He wants to be your most faithful, trusted, and intimate friend. You know, let's just say you have a rich relative die, and that rich relative puts in his will, you know, um, here are the two options I leave for you in my will. And the first option is, if you want money immediately, then you can have a cashier's check for one cent. Or you can wait one year and get a billion dollars, and then a billion dollars every year after that until you die. Now, what are you going to choose? Think about it. Think about it long and hard. <laughs> what, what is that? What is that? Well, this is the whole point. Will you choose a penny of immorality now? Or will you wait, give glory and honor to Christ and to God and to other people and to whoever you may marry and have blessings for all eternity? That's how it is. 
That's how it is. Be joined to Christ now, not immorality. Get close to Jesus, not sin. Eight, flee immorality. Look at verse 18. You can see where I got this point. Flee immorality. The Greek word is fugo. It's the word we get fugitive from. Run away. Get scared. Flee. Escape. Hide. You know, pretend like there's this, what is this huge rabid Rottweiler after you. Run, run, run from immorality. That's the whole idea. This is the primary way God wants all believers to deal with sexual temptation. Run away. You know, I have talked to people who've tried to justify, well, we're just making out, man. We're just pawing all over each other. I mean, it's not like we're going all the way. Yeah, but the problem is you have to flee the temptation. Not everything but the full-blown act. The temptation. You remember when Joseph was pursued by Potiphar's wife and she kept propositioning him day after day. He said, listen, I'm not going to sin against God. I'm not going to sin against my master. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it. And finally she seized him. And what did he do? Did he just look into her dreamy eyes and her gorgeous face and say, you know, I think we should have a cup of tea and discuss this. Then he got out of Dodge. He ran so fast. It just popped his coat right off of him. He fled. That was the right thing to do. You know, when the Bible talks about stand firm in your faith and resist the devil and he will flee. But when it comes to immorality, run. You just leave that girl puckered up there. When your eyes open, she sees you get in your car. You're driving away. What happened? Where is he? He's obeying. That's what he's doing. And in the world, we're constantly assaulted. We have so many images of people who just have no, no understanding of the hideousness of immorality to God, have no desire to flee immorality that we've so brainwashed that we actually think it's okay if, you know, a couple junior hires are on the street corner making out in public. You know, it's like, whoa, what's the big deal? Or, you know, we're older, we're mature in the Lord, we can do this. No, no, no. If at any time you begin to be tempted to immorality, you must flee. That is the central command in the whole text. Nine, don't sin against your body. Look at verse 18. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Sexual sin is is compounded because... Not only do you sin against the Lord and sin against the other person if somebody else is involved, but you sin against your own body. You know, let's say that, you know, you had a brand new nice Ferrari. I mean, one of those really glossy red ones with the cool lines and the neat sounding engines. And, you know, you kind of look through the wheels and you see the red brake calipers. Mm-hmm. So you look at that, you just and you park a way out in the in the parking lot. Now you kind of double park it at an angle so no one gets near it. Why? You don't want to you don't want it to hurt, right? Your Ferrari there's really there's you know cost as much as a house. You know it's like whoa. Well, why not just go up to that Ferrari with the brick and just slam it down on the hood? Why not just get an ice pick and just run it along the side, and pour some glue on the dash, and stab the seats with a pair of scissors? You think, well, that would be dumb. (laughs) That would be dumb. When you commit acts of immorality, you injure your own body. You stab yourself in the leg, smash your hand with a brick. 
pour glue in your eyes. You injure your own person when you do that. So Paul says, don't do it. It's stupid. 10. Don't defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? We all know that Ephesians 4.30, we are sealed with the Spirit until the day of redemption. Romans 8 verse 9 says, if anybody doesn't have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he, he doesn't belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about we have all been baptized by one spirit and one body. We've all got the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. So why would you defile your body, which is the residence of the Holy Spirit? I mean, just imagine in your mind the most wonderful, the most incredible, the most beautiful temple you can think of. I mean, just huge, elaborately carved white pillars and polished granite and, you know, just gorgeous whatever that looks like in your mind which is the resident of the holy spirit of god almighty that that is that special place where the holy spirit resides clean and pristine and separate from sin and just imagine going in there with like a five gallon bucket of sewer water and just why would you do that well if you love the holy spirit if you love god you wouldn't do that That's the whole point. You would never defile the temple of the Holy Spirit if you love the Holy Spirit. Immorality engaged in in the mind or in the acts defiles is the sewer thrown into the temple of God. So we can't do it. We need to honor the Holy Spirit with purity. 11, you're not your own. Look at the end of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. Paul gives another reason why immorality makes no sense. You are not your own for you have been bought with a price. You know, there are a lot of professing Christians who actually think that, you know, they they own themselves. They can do what they want and go where they want, whenever they want. I mean, hey, you know, it's my body. You know, I can do what I want. You hear this in the world. You know, it's my body. I can have an abortion if I want. You can't tell me what to do. Well, the fact is it's not your body. If you're a Christian, it's not your body. You know, we cringe at the whole thought of slavery, but the fact is, it's a biblical concept. If you don't know Christ, you're a slave of sin and Satan. Satan has you deluded and you are his slave. You think, well, well, what do you mean? Why would you say I'm deluded? Well, how many people would willingly align themselves with somebody whose sole purpose it is to make them misery, destroy their life, and have them burn in hell forever. See, no one in their right mind would say, hey, I'm lining up with you. So you have to be deluded. Otherwise, you wouldn't be following that course of life. The rest, by default, since there's only one other category, are Christians. And Christians are those who are purchased by the precious blood of Christ. Listen to what 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 says. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Just think of that. Think of the cost that was paid that God became a man and Jesus shed his blood, gave his life to redeem you 
from sin. So if you commit acts of immorality, you're going against the very thing that Christ died for. Let's say that you want one of the new, you know, what's cool now, the iPod touches or whatever, iTouches, I don't know what they're called. Those, you know what I'm talking about. You're going, yeah. And, you know, you want one of the new, you know, 32 gigabyte. And so you come to your parents and go, man, mom, dad, and I really need one, you know. Could you buy me one? They go, we aren't going to buy you a $400 gadget. But you want it, you want it. They say, hey, listen, save your money, get it yourself. So you go, okay, 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 I will. So all summer long, you're washing cars and mowing lawns and pulling weeds and dusting attics and, you know, scrubbing toilets and killing spiders underneath people's houses. You're getting some good life skills. And after three months, you've got your money and enough to pay the taxes and everything. And so you go to the store. But why? Because the store owns what you want. They have total control over it. And if you want total control over it, you got to pay the price. You've got to redeem it from the store. So you throw down your grubby bucks and you get your gadget. Now, once your gadget's yours, then you can use the gadget because now it's in your control because you paid the price for it. Now, let's just say you're, you're at home, you set down the counter, you come in and you can't find it and your brother and sister are outside doing something in the street and you look and they're playing catch with your... Like, hey, hey, what are you doing? Whoa, wait, no, you know. Or maybe they're out there playing hockey with it, you know, like a hockey puck. Or you can't find it and you go out in the backyard and there's your mom using it to dig a hole to plant some flowers. <laughs> or, or there you are and you walk in the living room and your dad's got a big, you know, sweaty glass of cold iced tea and he's using it for a coaster. <laughs> now, would that be fine with you? It's like, well, no. Why? Because that's mine. I paid money for that. And so I get to say how that's used. Jesus died for you. Jesus paid the ultimate price for you. He gets to say how your body's used and it's not to engage in immorality. He gets to say how your mind is used and it's not for lusting after forbidden things. So glorify God with your body because it's not yours. You've been purchased. Purchased from sin and Satan and its consequences, hell. 12, glorify God with your body. This is kind of the all-encompassing granddaddy reason for maintaining purity. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten thirty-one: whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all what? To the glory of God. He says something very similar in Colossians 3:17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I was talking to a lawyer a while back who has recently become a pastor and <laughs> at a church near you. He was talking about this one case where this woman who was mad at her husband kind of used her baby as a weapon. And you just think about that and you think that is that's sick. Well, it makes God sicker 
when we commit acts of immorality. It makes him sick. You are designed, you were created, you were saved to give glory to God, not to do things that make God sick. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anybody doesn't love the Lord, let him be accursed. Now, there is a problem if you say, well, I'm a Christian, I love the Lord. However, I'm going to engage in acts that are not profitable for me. I'm going to reject my true master and commit some idolatry by pursuing immorality. I'm going to use my mind and body for purposes they were never created for. I'm going to defile my body, which will be resurrected and which I will be in, in the presence of Christ for all eternity. I am going to unite Christ and the body of Christ with immorality. I'm going to choose union with sin rather than union with Christ. I'm going to stand there, refuse to flee. I'm going to allow sexual temptation to devour me. I am going to, you know, sin and injure my body with immorality. I'm going to defile the holy, the temple of the Holy Spirit with immorality. I'm going to refuse to submit to my loving master who purchased me with his own blood, died on the cross to set me free from sin and said, I'm going to engage in that very sin in his face. Now, do you see the impact here? It's not, well, you shouldn't do that because you're just not old enough and it might leave you emotionally scarred. Paul dumps on us all of these reasons so we can feel the full impact of the gravity of immorality. It's bad. It's really bad. It's so bad, in fact, it's one of the key sins frequently mentioned that if it accompanies a person's life as a habit, as a pattern of their life, and they can do it, without a guilty conscience, without confessing, without repenting, without striving after holiness. It's one of the key sins that designates you as a child of Satan headed for hell. Listen to what the word of God says. I've already read this earlier on, but I'm just going to read the portions that relate specifically to immorality. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. Clear? Very clear. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, and things like these of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, but immorality or any impurity must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Revelation 21, 8, but for the immoral persons, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's just a small sampling. It is crystal clear. 
We've got a whole generation of people think, well, I can do immorality. I can look at pornography. I can, you know, scan pictures and lust after women walking by and make out with my girlfriend and do all these different things. And you know what? It's not a big deal. Well, it's not a big deal if you don't believe the Bible, if you're deluded. Now, you may be sitting out there and you may be thinking, Jack, I just want you to know, I came out of a past that's just just what you described there. And you know what? A lot of us have. There's a lot of people here who have a scary, sordid past. But you know what? There's forgiveness in Christ. You don't need to worry about it. All those sins you committed before coming to Christ, before placing your faith in Jesus, all those sins have been washed away. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. He has taken it all out of the way. He has nailed it to the cross. And so you have great reason because you are among the such were some of you. That Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 6.11. And so don't let Satan try and beat you up over those sins. You know, oh, yeah, remember what you did before you came to Christ? It's like, well, yeah, but remember what he did for me on the cross? You're forgiven. Others of you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, but I'm pretty sure I'm a Christian, but I, I still do these sins. Well, what happens when you do those sins? Do they grieve you? Do they cause you to, like David said, waste away as in the fever heat of summer? Do they burden you? Do they cause great guilt? Do they bring on confession and repentance? Are you striving after the sins and periodically falling into them? Or are you living a lifestyle? If you're living a lifestyle, then assume you don't know Christ. If you're struggling, you're just a Christian. You're a Christian. I mean, I wish I could say I never lost I never do that. This is not true. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sins, we are liars and the truth is not in us. We're, we're all sinners and we're all going to sin. The thing is, what happens when we sin? Do we just stay in the sin, enjoy the sin, and live there? That's an unbeliever. Or do we confess it and go, Lord, I shouldn't have looked. I shouldn't have lusted. I shouldn't have done this. You confess it. You strive You make plans to avoid it. You see evil. You hide yourself from it. You put up precautions. You get other people involved in your life. You're constantly battling, battling, battling for purity. That's a Christian. So we're not talking about perfection here. J.C. Ryle wrote, The scars left by youthful sins, even after forgiveness and complete reconciliation with God, are never wholly effaced, and the recollection of them often causes bitter sorrow. You can talk to any person here who's been a believer for many years and they will be able to tell you, I did things when I was young that have grieved me all of my life. And I wish I could go back and fix it, but I can't. And I I know I have forgiveness. I know Christ has forgiven me. Young people, you need to realize you commit sins in your youth. Sometimes you will suffer the consequences of those your entire life. Even if you're a Christian, even if you're saved, even if you're completely forgiven in Christ, which you will be if you know Christ. So don't do it. Don't do it. Have a, a, a clean conscience. Strive for purity. Sin is a bitter pill and the effects of sin 
often have to be swallowed for a whole lifetime. Finally, I'm sure there's some here this morning who, who don't know Christ, you know? Maybe you're living together. It's like no big deal in the world. Maybe you're, you know, have a serious string of monogamous serial relationships with significant others. Maybe pornography is your vice. Maybe all of the above. Who knows? Well, what is the solution for you? It's to realize that God hates that sin. That sin's going to drag you to hell. And so you need to confess your sin. You need to repent of your sin. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died to set people free from that lifestyle. His grace is sufficient for you. He will wash that black board perfectly white with his blood. And he is able to make you stand blameless in his presence with great joy. And if you come to Christ, it doesn't matter how much you've sinned. It's amazing to me how some people I talk to, well, I just, you just don't know how much I've sinned. No, you don't know how sufficient God's grace is and how thorough is the atoning blood of Christ. That's what you don't know. Because when he died in that cross, he made an atonement and he made a sacrifice that could have forgiven all those in the world of all their different sins. Christ will forgive you. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He will forgive you. And then his grace, the body of Christ, the word of God, the Holy Spirit will all help you progress so that you become such were some of you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this text, which is so clear, so powerful, so pounding upon us. And Father, I'm sure all of us here, I know I am, are just feeling the weight of it. We live in such an immoral world, so full of sexual temptations and devices and ungodly models and examples and pictures and traps and snares and people with no morals and weak brothers and sisters in Christ and on and on it goes. Father, we come to you just praising you for Jesus Christ and for your grace, for we know that no temptation will ever come upon us but such as is common to man and that you always provide a way of escape so that we will be able to endure it. Help us to flee from immorality, to take every caution to cut off the hand and gouge out the eye and do whatever it takes to maintain purity because we want to be blessed in this church. We want you to be honored. We want to encourage each other. We want to not sin against our bodies, not sin against other people and honor them as you would have us honor them. Help us to do that. Father, we know that you will answer these prayers because they are your will. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.